Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this event today. My name is Jamie Cook. I'm head of RSA Scotland, uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to Per Esmond Stockness, who is going to walk us through his new book and contribution to this uh, and timely piece of work. Per Esmond is Director of the Centre for Sustainability and Energy at the Norwegian Business School in Oslo. His award-winning book, What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming, came the focus of a highly successful TED Talk viewed by over 3 million people. His latest book, Tomorrow's Economy, a guide to creating healthy green growth, explores the issues of sustainability, equitable growth, and puts forward some practical suggestions for how we might be able to achieve and deliver that. I'm delighted you could join us today, uh, Peresman, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thanks. Pleasure being with you, Jamie. So there's obviously been a lot of discussion as we've gone through this incredibly turbulent time over the, the past year of uh, the pandemic hitting and the impacts it's had in our day-to-day lives about the needs to build back better or build forward better to find new ideas that maybe help us to, to create a, a more equitable and a, a different society and economy to function in. With you bringing this new book out and, and the ideas that it brings forward around healthy green growth, do you feel that this pandemic has opened up a space for a discussion that perhaps wasn't there before? Or do you think it's created any barriers to being able to see that for? Indeed, it has, Jamie. Um, there are a number of things that are new now as we enter the 2020s. Um, and one of them is the, the, that the COVID and pandemic has kind of completely crushed that neoliberal idea of um, that this should be a minimalist government, minimalist state, do not interfere with the market. Um, so if we had a minimal minimalist state, we'd more or less all be um, coughing and dying of COVID now by now. But happily, uh, government has interfered and, and procured uh, a number of vaccines and also not least help us um, find new social norms like wearing masks, um, working from home as we do now, etc. And everybody kind of respects that because everybody else does. So there's this whole new space for government to intervene in the economy and provide it a new direction. Um, this simply was kind of questioned all the way by mainstream economists from Reagan, Thatcher, but also, you know, uh, Milton Friedman, um, the whole... Um, uh, monetary and efficient market thinkers from Lucas to 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 uh, Samuelson, um, all going back to Pellegrin society in the sense that um, the idea was that uh, the government is the problem. If you can kind of starve the beast, then we'll have a better society. Uh, now we see that we are um, completely um, enveloped and that the, the market flesh, so to speak, needs the government skin in order to work well at all. Um, so if we then apply this now, uh, this deep recognition that we do need government inter intervention in order to avoid the next huge wave, uh, which is um, planetary boundaries such as climate, uh, the loss of biodiversity, the, the nutrient uh, nitrogen, uh, overloads, then government now has a proven avenue, a proven role, uh, and can take firm steps towards being a more entrepreneurial state 
stimulating those solutions that we science tells us so clearly we need. So without this massive intervention and massive direction with mission statements from government, um, we probably won't have a healthy growth. We need government to kind of provide that sense of new direction for growth. I think that's really fascinating uh, reflection on where we are, particularly in the sense of, as you say, how many governments are actually of the right and who have maybe, you know, we've seen it here in the United Kingdom, who have been arguing the case for austerity and for, you know, cuts to public spending, that in the face of the crisis, suddenly spending has become very fashionable and questions around the long term impact, you know, particularly with costs of borrowing uh, so low, have opened up some of those those opportunities. Now, one of the areas that you've obviously worked on on a lot over the years in your, your previous work, the TED Talk we mentioned, and that feeds into this new book as well, is around that idea of how we stimulate change psychologically, how we bring people on board. And you mentioned there that, that obviously the looming challenge threats that we face is around the climate emergency. Now, we saw during this um this, this pandemic, an element of outpouring, I think, of, of empathy, of an ability to connect to others who weren't necessarily people we knew or would see, but we were willing to be locked down to help them. Now, given your understanding of the, the, uh, the psychology behind that, I wondered whether, can you see how we can then capture some of that in a positive way? We don't just want fear, obviously, as you've, you've explored before, but how can we capture that empathy that was there for something like a pandemic? that surely needs to be there for a response to the, the climate emergency, but perhaps has been missing in many places up until now. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I started studying the psychology of climate typically like 20 years ago and um, coming from a depth psychology tradition, Jungian narrative type, I, I was always questioning, okay, what story is this about the climate? And, and without maybe willing it climate scientists came up with or at least when they met journalists uh, ended up as a kind of apocalypse or catastrophe story um, because that was what helped them uh, make the headlines and um, that was the overwhelming um, approach and it has had quite large psychological costs in the sense that uh, when you feel that this is global, overwhelming, large, and whatever we do, it will be insufficient. We're heading towards the cliff. We're boiling the earth. There are kind of monster storms coming, uh, and, and it's the end of times. Then the willingness to kind of think creatively, collaborate with others, and go all in on new opportunities are is weakened. So... Um, I analyzed, as you mentioned, this psychology deeply in my previous book uh, titled What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. Um, and then this new book on tomorrow's economy is a kind of following up from that in the sense that um, when I spoke about um, opportunities for innovation, um, green growth, uh, new direction for the economy, uh, people would say, you know, it's too late. Um, and uh, it's just kind of uh, fiddling around at the edges because the economic system will prevail and uh, it, whatever you do is not, uh, doesn't make a real dent. So what I found was that we were lacking an imagination about how we, how we succeed. Uh, the credible story of where we go, how we go from 2020 towards 
a stable climate in 2040-2050 uh, was very weak. And um, it, it was kind of hard to believe uh, the more you read about climate science, the worse everything looked. And the minute you said, we still have a chance, you were sounding maybe like a Pollyanna uh, kind of optimism that uh, that was un, it's unfeasible and ungrounded. So I found out, hmm, uh, coming up with dire predictions, that's kind of an academic speciality. And all the bright people, the rational people have been crunching the numbers and been nailing it. It's all going the wrong way, the wrong way, the wrong way. Um, and the, that's the easy story. Now, the hard story to tell is how we actually make it. How do we reconfigure society? How do we turn businesses around rapidly enough and um, in a way that matters? And does it all add up? And that's why I wrote this book, Tomorrow's Economy, a guide to creating a healthy green growth. Not because um, I'm convinced we'll make it, but uh, because it is a story that, as I believe it, stimulates the imagination and creates a sense that, hmm, maybe it is possible after all. Maybe we can turn the economy around, despite all. I, and I think an incredibly timely space to, to be looking at that. And it really strikes me when you, you balance that um, contradiction between the, the doom and the gloom and the Armageddon approach, which, you know, of course, we need to be aware of the seriousness of, of what we're confronted with. Absolutely. It's also finding cause for, for optimism. Um, just as a starting point to make sure we're rooted now, growth has become a bit of a, a dirty word in, in many ways. And I, I know you reflect in, in the book very powerfully in the fact that it's it's an either or, isn't it? You're either for growth at all costs or against growth at all costs, and mm. which generally I, I find usually you need something positive uh, in between the two. But could you lay out for us just a, a very brief kind of explanation of your vision of, of green growth? And then perhaps we can kind of unpack that a bit and maybe some of the, the conflicting or, or contrasting visions of, of growth and so on. That's right. Mm. Yeah. So um, ideally, do respect the deep concerns that the growth pessimists have, uh, because the way we have been growing over the last 120 years, since 1900, is mainly destructive if you view it from this point of view of animals or the forest or the air itself. So uh, there's this huge shadow that has been accumulating to growth. Um, and I'm, I tried to kind of put that into the phrase of gray growth. Uh, we're making nature gray by the way we're growing. So, um, and also if the, the growth optimists have, have been kind of, shall we say, um, uh, driving a kind of hobby horse without really taking in deeply to heart how destructive the economic system has been. So they were always just pointing, well, we lifted millions out of poverty and we've come up with smartphones and better medicines and planes. You don't want to be without that, do you? So the only way is forward and, and the, the more the merrier and, and just keep going and technology will eventually fix it. And that is, too, a very weak analysis, I think, because it doesn't really challenge the growth dynamics itself. There is no deep examination of, um, for instance, the throughput, uh, the material throughput uh, in the economic system. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of awaiting the next fix. So um, what I found is that there's been three main types of criticisms um, 
if you're on the left side of the political spectrum, you would typically blame capitalists and the capital system, capitalist system, capitalism itself, uh, for being driven by greed um, and crushing um, nature's resources, so society's resources, everything for a short-term gain. Uh, so the problem is the capitalists and the capitalist system. Um, while on the more on the conservative side, and particularly if you have some economics background, you would blame the government. So the government is ineffective. Uh, the politicians don't really listen to the good analysis of econ economists because the, the solution is to put a proper uh, price on the pollution or also called internalizing the externalities. Uh, so the problem is weak governance, not capitalism or capitalists. They're all fine. Uh, <laughs> So, you, so you, you put the finger on government rather than, so, you know, that's why we had this conversation going badly for the last 40 years. And then the, the Greens or the, the deep Greens and, and the environmentalists in particular, they've had this affinity for whipping the consumer. So, uh, huh, are you eating meat? Are you? Oh, oh, that plane ride you did last year. So the problem is the, the consumption, the consumers and um, the kind of endless um uh, so we say reliance on consumerist growth towards affluenza. Um, so you should kind of shape up the, the, the individual consumer is the problem. So we have these three kind of blames. You put the blame on the capitalist, you put the blame on government, or you put the blame on the individual consumer. And I think all these three are now kind of caricaturizing them a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think all three are kind of missing what I would call the three secrets. Um, and uh, these three secrets that I reveal in the book is first that most people haven't really analyzed or taken in the extent of material um, wastefulness that we built into the economy over the 1900s. So rather than blaming somebody, whether it's a capitalist or a government or a consumer, we could do some analysis of material flows. Um, where exactly do the materials go and where is the wastefulness in the system? And that's when you discover the staggering, absolutely mind-boggling amount of wastefulness in the material flows underlying the money. So after 100 years of economic development, many people think we have an efficient economy. Well, it may be if you only analyze the economy based on pounds or dollars, and you forget about all the tons of metal, of concrete, of, of um, rubber, of trees, fishes, in, in, in actual real kilograms. They, you know, economics have this weird magic by which they convert everything in the world to money. And then it's just credit and debits uh, in a company. And that's added up to national accounts. And then away went the world and here is the money uh, representation of it. Uh, so it's a kind of, yeah, magicking away the real world uh, and replacing it with money accounts. Now, the, the secret is to return not just to the money accounts, but to the material accounts. That's where we get into the core of the matter. And then rather than attacking um, uh, private entrepreneurs, uh, investments, business, uh, as being kind of um, inherently destructive, I think we should see that it's the neoliberal version of capitalism that is the problem. So there are many, many types of capitalisms. We should never use capitalism as a, as a one 
um, uh, in a singular. It's really a plural world. So the, the UK capitalism is very different from the Swedish capitalism, which is very different from the Silicon Valley version, which is very different from the Kenyan version. And all these different capitalisms have their cultural characteristics, their frameworks, their legal frameworks, and their values frameworks. And I think um, we should go away from this idea that is uh, a, a one type of capitalism and see that each country or each region has its own specific type of capitalism that we have the opportunity to do something with. And the problem here has been that mainstream economics, particularly Anglo-Saxon ver version of it, has kind of made this ideal market system that consists of a number of producers uh, interacting with the numbers of consumers, and you have this efficient market hypothesis that explains everything. Uh, and it's a really, really bad theory, even for economists, it's been criticized, you know, thoroughly and slashed, but still it kind of keeps going. So it's kind of, so that's the second secret that there are numerous capitalist systems out there, and many of them are much more sensitive and resilient than uh, others. And, and third, I think we for a number of years, and this comes back to your first question, Jamie, in terms of what we learned from the COVID crisis, that uh, it's not really about the size of government or how much the government money the money government uses, but it is how you use it and what's the what's the new story of government and this idea about the entrepreneurial state, where I completely support the economics of of uh, Mariana Matsukato. Um, and the, this capacity of the state to give the market a direction that has been um, kept secret from most people because they've only seen that the market you shouldn't interfere in the market so the market must find its own direction but the, the truth is it doesn't we have to um, give each market not just um, a volume of growth but also a direction of growth and maybe now in the 2020s the direction is much more important than the volume and particularly in the richer countries it's, that's really fascinating and I, I think that reflection as you say in the different capitalisms that exist it's amazing how we've allowed the, the dialogue and political framing to be so restricted to one particular dominant economic uh, way of thinking at this stage uh, and in a way of thinking that often you know, mysteries represents much of what went in in its early stages, you know, so the the, the moral aspects of Adam Smith's thinking mm. never seem to quite be uh, brought up as often as as perhaps some of the, the other aspects of it. And I find it really fascinating talking about the role of, of business within that. Mm. An area we've worked on a lot at the RSA, I've been involved in Scotland, uh, is very involved in, is that idea of the circular economy. So exactly as you were talking, that, that flow of resources and, and the, the huge waste, I mean, uh, incredible how, how inefficient we are with so much of these limited resources that we have. But I remember a, a space where I've sometimes been challenged on, in a sense, has been, and it goes back to what you're saying about those different mindsets, you know, of the kind of the, the deep green, the, the, the left and the right, is the idea of, you know, when we framed this as talking to businesses about the circular economy and saying, well, look, yes, this is good for the environment. This is good for humanity as a, as a species and the other species we share this planet with. Yep. It's your business, um, you know, your business will benefit from this and be more successful. There has been a, a critique uh, or a pushback from particularly environmental charities at points of, but we shouldn't be encouraging businesses. It's not about the health of the businesses. So 
you've touched a bit there on, on that role that businesses need to play, but how do we balance as well the fact that there can quite often be a distrust of businesses, a fear of greenwashing or misusing terminology? Are hmm. you that are particularly engaging with this in a productive way, in a way that is sustainable taking forward. Uh, and do we should we be worried about greenwashing? Or actually, in a sense, if we get everyone starting to use some of the language, is that a benefit or a progress in itself? Mm. Yeah. Um, um, there, again, there's a good reason for being skeptic towards business, right? Uh, because uh, the way they have been working is almost like an externality machine in the sense that any cost, whether it's the pollution or the access to resources or um, uh, labor, um, when people get sick or you need to lay off, you just throw all those costs aboard. So you call, you've been throwing them over to society to keep, uh, so you privatize the benefits and you socialize the costs. That, and that's been a dominant frame, uh, yeah thinking frame for um, business, which actually just kind of grows out of the accounts. Um, because anything that's not in your um, P&L, profit and loss statement, um, uh, if, if, if there are losses that you can avoid, uh, throw them to society. And the same thing with your balance sheet. If there are any uh, liabilities, you can show over to society. They look better after you've done so. So um, if you then kind of slap sustainability labels on top of that without thinking differently also in terms of accounting and strategy then most companies and businesses will continue business as usual with a greenwashing uh, facade now um, there's only one benefit to that uh, businesses start saying that we are sustainable or we are green or this is a sustainable product is that when you've first started, then the risk to your brand and risk to your revenue of being caught with your pants down uh, really starts to um, build momentum. And then at some point, executives would have to really, um, either out of fear or out of being caught, <laughs> they start to rethink what they're really up to. So I think it's the easy um, to criticize business for greenwashing, but also um, if we can hold them to the fire, hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, then uh, it starts an irreversible process. Um, and then they gradually can discover that the more they actually implement uh, sustainability measures, the better they get to handle their risk, both external and internal risk. For instance, now climate risk becomes a huge issue. And if you don't report properly, then your investors may withdraw. Um, secondly, when you start really to look at the wastefulness in your production, your logistics, uh, from a material point of view, you, you discover the opportunity to save um, money also. So cutting the wastefulness really helps you um, improve the bottom line as well. Th so it kind of improves your productivity. Thirdly, when you do develop sustainability solutions that are competitive in the market, uh, it helps you raise your top line growth. So revenue goes up after a while. And after handling risk, better productivity, both labor and resource productivity, and third, improving your, your uh, top line growth, there is the issue of talent, that um, a lot of people just don't want to work with companies that greenwash, uh, that don't have any integrity, uh, that continue this um, um, stakeholder 
value Maxime uh, forever. We're only here for our stakeholders, our shareholders, sorry, the shareholder um, um, paradigm. So um, all these four factors now come together as kind of causal explanations as to why sustainability also is a friend of profits. So um, even though in the beginning, businesses may appear to be greenwashing only, gradually as they deepen their strategy and they also get better at accounting for the benefits of sustainability, they'll see that it's, it, it is actually aligned with running a profitable business. Um, and then at some point in order to avoid not just being having a positive relationship, but you start to ask the question, okay, how much should we do? What's the minimum for being, let's say, a part of the Paris Agreement or part of the solution for a future sustainable economy? Um, and that's when you get into this thing called science-based targets. So you now start to see your value added or your, your, your resource use up against the planetary boundaries that we, that we have on this planet. So what's my minimum contribution to solving uh, the overshoot on the planetary boundaries and ecosystems. And then if you start to put that back into your, your accounts and on your balance sheet, and you expand that balance sheet to include also social and natural capital uh, in a way that aligns with the standards, uh, and you do this transparently, then suddenly you've started a transformation as a company. And, and that's been my calling, so to speak, at Norwegian Business School, to take this from greenwashing into uh, a deep integration in strategy, um, changing your accounting system and the way you report this, and then also uh, finding a realistic but sufficient ambition level so that we're not doing just like changing a couple of cars from diesel to electric and say, now we've gone green. Uh, mm -mm. You have to look at the entire business as a system and the change year by year has to be at least the pace of uh, the average change in the economy globally if you are to be a part of the solution. And luckily now there are ways of accounting for this so you can get a very clear answer with two lines under. Either you're too slow to be part of the solution, you're a part of the problem, or you're changing rapidly enough to be a part of the solution. And just to give a couple of examples, um, the Danish company Dong, used to be Danish oil and natural gas. Dong, <laughs> crazy name, by the way. And then, <laughs> and then they um, got a new CEO back in 2010, Henry Paulsen, and they decided um, that they would start transitioning over into wind power. And each time that they had opportunity, they sold an uh, oil and gas asset and reinvested the funds uh, as, a, as a leveraged with loans so that you could get more wind power. And then over an eight to 10 year period, um, they completely transitioned their product portfolio and their business model. And now they're on, on the world's leading offshore wind companies. And um, they still have a coal plant in Denmark, but it's now scheduled to be completely phased out by 2023, so just a couple of years. And then they will be the first oil and gas company to have done a complete transition into a renewable energy company. Uh, it started with a couple of wind farms and 10 years later, they're transformed. And these kind of examples aren't that rare. When you start to look for them, you find them kind of everywhere. But uh, it's only, I would say, the last 10 years. If you look further back, like 2000 and the 1990s, except when we started, 
at least I started in this area, um, th there were very few examples. You could find one or two here and there, but they were exceptional. And now I see this kind of momentum. I discover them everywhere. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm not saying everybody is transitioning, yeah. but I'm saying you can find examples in all the sectors, all the countries, um, all the different types of, of um, markets that we can look at. Uh, there are now people, entrepreneurs, green entrepreneurs doing incredible stuff. And to me, that's so uplifting and inspiring each time I hear those stories and uh, each time I meet the, these kind of entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to share and, and highlight those stories as well, because it does uh, give almost that that permission to people to to think in that way. Uh, I remember the RSA, we, we held a, a conference in Pittsburgh in the US a few years ago, uh, and the Mars Corporation mm. uh, took part in it. And we're talking about their new approach to you know, actually maximizing profits not being the best uh, way for them to be, you know, sustainable in every sense as mm -hmm. a company. And it feels like it really chimes with that idea of those those different views of capitalism. They weren't saying we no longer support capitalism as a system, but they were saying the version we have is not sustainable for people, profit and planet uh, as equal, um, equal kind of ratings or importance uh, to us. In terms of obviously big pushes within the the kind of wider ecological and and um, environmental discussion have maybe pushed strongly against growth. Going back to what we said about growth being seen as a bit of a bad word, mm. and around the idea, particularly of degrowth, being the the goal. Um, how do you see that fitting alongside what is it feels like a, a, a more to me, a, an optimistic way to try and capture some of the successful aspects within the system of, of companies flourishing and the jobs and, and economic benefit that can bring. You know, whilst recognising you, you've highlighted your own uh, healthy cynicism at points or scepticism about some of the, the areas that we're, we're looking at. How does how does this feel it sits with that degrowth movement and do they sit in competition or is it a way to reconcile the two together? Mm. Uh, excellent question, and and I think this degrowth debate is incredibly important for us um, in the sense that we need to stop up and and really take a step back and and reflect on the way that growthism, <laughs> the, the ideology of growth, have kind of permeated everything. Um, and and from a kind of psychological therapy point of view, I think degrowth is very important because it, it makes you question the type of growth we've had. Um, but a little bit like you know, um, confronting your psychoanalytic uh, defense mechanism, the ego defense mechanisms you have, um, it doesn't really provide you with a new direction. Uh, it can make you aware how you've been stuck, but uh, then what? And um, at least I don't know how the, the UK, how, how, what a proportion of the UK has been kind of caught by the degrowth. Um, movement but um here in norway at least and probably sweden as well and particularly the usa um if you promote stop cut um take down um degrowth as the main thing uh, then it's a kind of political suicide um not least because you lose business um i mean if you're an executive in any business, your main job is to make sure you grow a bit more next year than you do now. So um, within that, the degrowth frame, you've kind of lost them and you lost their engagement. 
So rather than just killing growth, or to be more specifically, killing gray growth, I think we should also show an attractive alternative. And I do know that the degrowth people are trying to show an attractive alternative. It's just that they don't speak to business audiences at all. Uh, so that's one major problem I see with the degrowth rhetorics. However, when you look at their types of solutions, such as a universal basic income, um, shifting towards uh, local renewables, um, more decentralized food production systems, um, all these can be actually be part of, of uh, the green growth. Um, and I think this other major problem with the degrowth approach is that they are um, so reluctant or so resistant to market dynamics that they're not willing to engage with markets at all. But markets have a lot of bad sides, but they also have a lot of good sides, which is that if you have a bad product, let's say um, uh, asbestos, whatever, and then it, this was branded as a health problem, then suddenly companies that are in asbestos, they are going to die in a few years. So um, there's this kind of created destruction to markets that Joseph Schumpeter was early to point out. And I think we have a huge force for rapid transformation in markets if we can configure them right. So what we really want is the green innovations, the green system design to grow rapidly. And the, the more rapidly it grows, the more profits and the investments it will attract. So you get this kind of escalating um, self-reinforcing cycle of accelerating the transformation. And, and that has uh, an incredible momentum once you get it going. And we've seen a little bit about it for just the last, I would say, 12 months in the, in the ESG, in the hydrogen, uh, in the electric mobility, in the battery space. Um, suddenly, because the market now gets interested in these, these areas, you have uh, uh, an immense drive towards growing this as quickly as possible. And I think that's a more rapid pathway to transition than um, degrowth approach that does not kind of harness that uh, energy, that engine, uh, that market innovation can be. So, so these are two my main criticisms that I've, I don't find that degrowthers paint um, an attractive alternative that also businesses and the economic area um, would like to join into. And the other is that um, I think they're underestimating the, the, the capacity of creative destruction in a Schumpeterian sense. And, and really fascinating because again, I think that bringing together of different sectors is so critical. It's certainly here in Scotland, uh, one of our big problems I still think is that we tend to hold most of our discussions in silos. So we bring together the public sector and government, we bring together civic society, we put, you know, if we bring together business at all, they're set somewhere else away from us all. Uh, it feels like until they're actually actively working together to use those systems for, for disruptive change, then how are we going to see a, a sustainable uh, and profitable growth and change within that. I suppose just um, kind of building out, and you know, I'm, I'm someone who's very involved in a lot of the basic income discussions here in Scotland and elsewhere in the world. So it's uh, great to hear you mention it without me just having to shoehorn it into discussion like I try to do normally. But I was interested in the sense of we've talked about the role of the state, that entrepreneurial state that has a critical role in helping to drive and shape and provide that momentum. We've talked about the role of business and, and new models of capitalism that can allow us to harness the, the again, the entrepreneurial and the innovative and the, the creative there. So I suppose that the other aspect is then the people, 
wider society mm. and how we bring them in. And one of the things that's concerned me at points about the debate over um, changes to, to the economy, to new models, new jobs and so on, has been almost the, the issues around, well, we know that certain industries need to change. So your example with Dong is a fantastic one. They've moved into new industries. But when we look at the ending of you know, extractive mining approaches, when we look at some of the, the, the energy that needs to change, of course, the risk is that people are left behind as those jobs disappear. Uh, and particularly communities that are often most disconnected from other economic opportunities. And I think, you know, to use one example, we can see from the US how, you know, the, the election of President Trump uh, in his, his first election partly was through the, the capturing of, say, voters in somewhere like Pennsylvania, where he promised to bring back industries that were going. Uh, exactly. Um, and I suppose there, there, therefore, is that twofold. One is the language to bring people along with us, which you've touched on through that, that psychological basis. But how do we look at those aspects so that this seems to be one of the criticisms of growth has been that it's been an unequal growth, that some people benefit and many others don't? How do we bring those communities that have maybe been reliant upon technologies and jobs that we can't have continue, but we need to find a new way to bring them into this exciting new new vision of a space that you've outlined. Hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, that's been a big, huge issue, I think, both in particular in the US and, and also the UK, um, as it's been kind of entering into globalization and um, all the benefits of globalization have accumulated to typically the urban elites while the more district jobs and etc have suffered the challenges and, and now if there's a danger of green growth doing the same thing so um, and we have this debate every day i would say in norway because we have 150,000 employees still in the petroleum sector and we know at some point that norway has to stop producing petroleum uh, but um, each new parliament kind of just refuses to do anything serious about it and we set very ambitious climate go far into the future and hope that future parliaments and future politicians will take care of it uh, so we don't have to fire anybody in the petroleum sector at all. Uh, so I really, really empathize with that question. And um, uh, But on the other side, um, if the Nordics can't make it, um, who, who can? So because we have this Nordic model where um, there's a safety net. So if you do lose your job, you're not kind of going to lose your house or your health benefits or or the children's education, etc. They they will be safe, and you'll get training, and you have an opportunity to kind of start over. Um, so we have these kind of trampoline policies where people who lose their jobs get kind of counselling and, and retraining, and hopefully can jump straight back in to a new job. Um, and part of that is that we've had this um, progressive tax taxation that um, has kept um, uh, income uh, inequalities uh, within a more tolerable bound uh, so that uh, we can actually have quite competent people at a um, lower shall we say, income rate relative to those who have less competence and those with less competence uh, don't fall too far down. And this um, something that uh, a Norwegian researcher called Kalle Muwene has called the um, uh, equality multiplier in the sense that when you have a more equal society, it's quicker for people to get back uh, into job once you lose it after uh, falling out, for instance, of an extractive industry. So then the real issue becomes also like how can economies such as UK or the US do that, um, even though there may be no safety net. And, and I think 
the, the fear and the anger and the resentment of kind of um, being thrown out, telling, being told that what you've been doing for 30, 40 years uh, is just uh, crap and shit. And when the environmentalists tell them you're just ruining the earth, uh, of course, they will have to find a way to, to, to kind of recapture their sense of dignity uh, and shoot back at those, those kind of urban elites who think they know so much better. So you get this immense kind of polarization of, of the districts and the, the urban areas. Um, but to get back to then, so what are the solutions? And of course, they would love, be lovely to have a kind of silver bullet that just would do it. Um, but in my book, um, I provide a what I call the inequality toolbox, um, where I provide special instruments for uh, the top 10% of incomes, uh, which typically, for instance, strengthening things like um, tax audits uh, would be a huge benefit. I mean, I talked to the, the chief of the, the tax authorities in Norway, and he would say, if we could increase the capacity for doing tax audits on the rich, it would have a one to a 100 um, uh, ratio of uh, <laughs> return on, on expenses. So uh, on the other hand, um, providing um, cheaper education, better counseling policies, and, and, and basic um, income, as universal basic income or some kind of model, uh, improving the unemployment benefits, um, taking down the, 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 the loans on re-education um, and education generally. So um, unfortunately, there is no silver bullet, but you have to kind of use the different instruments that are available to your society to build that. And then um, particularly, I would say, this kind of sense of entrepreneurial government that you would uh, pay what it takes for having new uh, companies. So let's say a, a battery factory placed in the area where there used to be an extractive economy and giving um, people access to the jobs uh, in that battery factory. Just to do one example, or retraining people to do offshore wind farm maintenance, retraining people to do um, uh, local uh, food high quality um, food value chains. Um, and, and that requires a much more entrepreneurial state uh, which, with a willingness to kind of accept loss as long as you redirect the market in a long-term perspective going beyond um, what we used to have in the 2000s, but maybe bringing this COVID mindset along that this is a thing, this is a thing that will it, it will take several years, but we're going to do it. And, and the willingness then to use um, money in a new way becomes a prerequisite for funding that, of course. So I really am, I support this thing with the new monetary theory uh, in the sense that as long as there is unemployment and unutilized resources in the economy, the government is really free to, to actually... Um, make that money and put it into the accounts of the people who really need it, rather than using the conventional ways of uh, doing um, uh, monetary uh, government bonds, um, uh, the, the quantitative easing type of thing, which only gives money to the financial system, and then it never trickles down to, uh, to the bottom layers. So um, governments do have it at their power if they want to, to create that money and then provide that directly to the people who would suffer from the transition. Uh, all it takes is new thinking and political courage. 
uh, hopefully political courage will be stronger after the, this corona uh, crisis. Fantastic, fantastic. So political courage, new thinking, innovation, uh, addressing inequality and recognising that we are interlinked, that we have this de dependency on each other. Uh, and that gives us that positive vision that you're outlining for uh, a world that can be healthy, green and growing uh, in, the, in the very definition of what we see uh, in nature. Yeah. So um, I can pick up on a word on that healthy issue because, you know, um, I've had my emphasis previously on the green part of it, but um, I've always been aware of the problems with in growing inequalities. But it was only when I wrote this book and did some proper research on it, I spent you know years on this thing, uh, digging into the social and health adverse effects of increasing inequality and the amount of literature that's brought out this from a scientific view just the last five to six years or the 10 years, it's um, incredible to the extent that you get um, the higher violence, the, the higher mental health issues, the lower social mobility, uh, the um, level of interpersonal trust and the student uh, progress uh, all these kind of things have are highly influenced by the level of how inequality changes so one of the key parameters i'm putting into a healthy growth compass is the change in what we call the palma ratio and the palma ratio is a new and much better way to speak about inequality than the old economic concept of the gini coefficient um, Maybe a few people heard about the Guinea, but you know, uh, to 99% of the people, it makes no sense. And if, even if you know it's a kind of measure of inequality, you still have problems with describing uh, what a change from 0.32 to 0.33 is on the Guinea coefficient. While the Palma is so much more accessible, it says take the income of the 10% richest, whether it's in a town or uh, a county or a uh, Scotland or England or Europe. 10% richest, and then you divide that by the sum income of the 40% poorest. Um, and then you can have, if, if it's one, then the 10% richest take the same amount of income as the 40% bottom uh, incomes. Um, and that seems to be a tolerable level of uh, inequality. So um, in the Nordic countries, we have a, a Palma of around one. But last time I checked, I think the UK is about 2.5. So the 10% richest have 2.5, the amount of the 40% poorest. And, and that is, uh, and the US is, is even worse. And now I'm speaking about disposable incomes after the tax. Um, and, and then healthy growth means that it becomes greener each year, measurably so, by how efficiently we use resources. Uh, so we eliminate wastefulness and make it green. And then uh, the um, just part of it um, has to do with how quickly we reduce the Palma ratio towards around one or preferably a little bit below one. So those two key factors make all this wishy-washy thing about inequality or inclusiveness um, much more communi communicable. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sometimes my... And, um, and um, I really hope we'll see um, much more use of this metric. Uh, you can use it, as I said, on a company level. What's the 10% richest incomes in one company compared to the 40% bottom? And uh, in a city, 
um, and it really helps empower people to participate in the fight against um, growing inequality, which undermines trust in society, undermines the social capital that we are all dependent on. And finally, maybe a fourth secret to add that is that when um, you do reduce that inequality, actually economic growth goes up. Um, it, it's even good for the capitalist to have less inequality. And that's a kind of win-win perspective that I think, um, unfortunately, hasn't been um, well enough and broadly enough communicated yet. And that's one of the contributions I hope my book, my new book can, can make. Fantastic. And I'm really sorry we have to stop talking at this stage because I, I could uh, talk to you and listen to you all day. And I think that idea of the fact that actually inequality isn't just, uh, you know, it's not something that's cost to get rid of, it costs us to keep it. And actually starting to address that, finding those ways to, to grow out of it and to create a healthier, greener, fairer, uh, future, I think, is is incredibly exciting. Preston, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us today. Uh, I'd highly recommend to all of you watching this that you pick up a copy of, of Tomorrow's Economy. I think it's a, a timely and uh, inspiring read, and I think hopefully today we'll have shown you a snapshot of, of some of the, the provocations and the ideas that are explored in there. And I'd also highly recommend Pressman's uh, TED Talk as well, add to those three million uh, viewers, because I think that, that I'm married to a psychologist, and I think that role of psychology and, and how we, we address these messages uh, is critical. Check out the RSA website, you'll be able to find links to the book, to, to other pieces of our work that's on there around these areas, our Regenerative Futures programme uh, and others, and also to our upcoming event series that hopefully you'll be able to join us for as we look at so many different areas. There's no doubting that the past year has been incredibly difficult and challenging and that there are many challenging months ahead of us. But I think also that ambition to grow out of this, to create something new and better, uh, is something that we've seen throughout the work we've been doing in so many of the conversations we've been engaging with. And I think the opportunity and the responsibility for us all now is to work together to create and invest in that better future. So thank you so much for your time and for your insights, Pressman. I look forward to learning more from you as we move forward. And thank you to everyone who's joined us for this event today. Thanks, Jamie. Pleasure being with you. And thanks for your excellent questions. And also for having this wonderful Scottish accent that I really miss. I mentioned that to Jamie, that I grew up at least one year in Inverness when I was a kid. And unfortunately, I lost my Scottish accent, but I really love hearing it. Thanks. We'll get you back over to Scotland as soon as it's possible then. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.